Well, you know, my goal is to get you to think like other people don't, to do things that other people aren't going to be willing to do, to see opportunities that others can't see. So I got a question just to kind of get you started. Maybe your life is too easy. Maybe you're not doing those things because life has been too easy for you. Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, yeah, we're going to be taking care of business here. If you're new to the 48 Days podcast, welcome in. We use that song as a lead-in, have for years. Because we're going to take care of business, do things that other people don't see, go where others are unwilling to go. That's what we do here. Hey, I've got a $100 prize for you. I want to give you a little contest you can participate in. Got some resources that are going to help you go where others have not been able to go. So get your pen and paper out, ease back, get ready to just relax. Hear some stories here that are going to help us go to those places that other people are not willing to go. So some of the questions, Dan, I hate to quit after just four months, but the company has changed what we agreed to. About this, how can we advise our 22-year-old granddaughter who just had her car stolen and already owes us $7,000? Somebody asked about a marathon that they're going to participate in. And he wonders how hard could it be to put together a profitable public event like that? And then listener asks, what are the books you recommend that will get me out of the doldrums that are as life changing and as impactful as anything you've ever read? Easy peasy all the way through. Hey, we're going to go through these and more quotation comes from Confucius who says, the gem cannot be polished without friction, nor man perfected without trials. All right, and our resource, going to lead you to 12 books that will lead you to a life of abundance and joy. 12 books. I'll explain more about this a little bit later, but if you go to 48days.com slash eagle eye, 48days.com slash eagle eye. It'll take you right to that list, and I'll tell you what some of those books are as we go through these questions today. So I want to know, how did an obstacle launch you into a better place? We're going to talk about that a little bit here, but I want to know, how has an obstacle launched you into a better place? I mean, I can certainly look back. A horrible, horrible business disaster that left me hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt forced me to look at business in ways that I never had before. I mean, I always thought that if you want a bigger business, you get a bigger, you rent a bigger building and get more employees. That was the only way that I imagined being able to grow a bigger business. Going through that change gave me time and forced me to look at some new options where I realized I could grow a business multiple, 10 times bigger than I ever had without any building and without any employees. It was just a different way to look at it. But I want to know, how did that obstacle launch you into a better place? Now, I had somebody send me, a listener sent me $100 cash, two $50 bills sent me, and just, just said, hey, just create a contest. He listens 
all the time. Not uncommon for somebody to do this. So I've got it right here. It's not even money out of my own pocket, but it's $100 cash. So I'm going to do this for a couple weeks. We'll leave this open for a couple weeks, but submit your story by May 30th. That's Memorial Day. So whenever you're listening, submit your story. How did an obstacle launch you into a better place? And then I'll announce on the June 3rd podcast who that winner is, and we'll share some of those stories. How an obstacle launched you into a better place. Just go to 48days.com slash askdan, and you can submit your question there or your, your story there. Incidentally, you know, there are also, there's, there's a microphone there. And most of you type it out. And that's perfectly fine. Either way is fine. But there is a microphone there. Just look around. There's a microphone. You just click on that and you can just speak your story as well if you want to. Now, if I'm going to share it here, it has to be pretty short. So don't give me a a five minute response. It's going to to be really short if we're going to share it here. Now, I got a story I want to share with you. Last night we were having uh, dinner and playing cards with some friends of ours and talking about, we've been friends for many years and talking about our dad's. And we were talking about raising apples, having apple trees, and how much I love apples. We got talking about that. And I said, there's a story about my dad asking a friend for advice on how to grow better apples. And so I wrote a piece. This has been several years ago, but it made me think of it. And I sent it over to my friend this morning. I want to share it here. And I titled it, Please Beat Me. So... I had an opportunity to meet Apple Dan Miller. That was what they called him, Apple Dan Miller. He was an Amish neighbor of my dad. He actually was the guy who built my dad's coffin years before my dad died. My dad paid him, I think it was $400 to build a simple you know, wooden coffin, which is the way he wanted to be buried. The guy had it in his barn. And when my dad died, my brother and I had to go look him up and find back in the dusty cobwebs that uh, that box that he had built for my dad and pull it out. Anyway, he was a great friend of my, of my dad's, so Amish neighbor of my dad. So he told me, so this guy told me that years ago, dad had complained to him that his apple trees looked beautiful, but weren't producing any apples. And now, you know, he was known far and wide for his apples. So Apple Dan told my dad to go home, grab a hammer and give his trees a severe beating around the trunk. He said they needed to have something wake them up, that life had been too easy. They needed a challenge to come to life. Now, this seemed kind of counter to the careful fertilizing, watering, and nurturing my dad had been giving his prized trees. I mean, he really did. I mean, he planted everything in his yard was beautiful, and he would stake the trees. He'd fertilize them, prune them, you know, mulch around them. They looked beautiful, but they weren't producing. And this guy said, you need to go home and beat those trees with a hammer? I mean, that's very, very hard for him to get his head around, but he trusted the wisdom of his Amish neighbor. Now, the next year, the trees produced so heavily, the dad saw branches breaking under the weight of the massive number of apples. We actually went up there with kids and uh, girlfriends, boyfriends of our kids went there. And one, one day we processed 60 bushel of apple from just a few apple trees because they produced so much. Now, I, I did a little bit of research, and I find this is not really an uncommon approach. I mean, if you want more crepe myrtle blooms, pull down the branches almost to the breaking point. Let them snap back in place. We know that roses, if left to themselves, will grow beautiful foliage, but, but few roses. 
I mean, the best way to get them produced, what they're designed to do is to cut them back severely every year, shovel down to cut off the growing roots. We have in our backyard here in Florida, bougainvillea. I mean, I love bougainvillea, but they aren't producing flowers like some of the others at the edges of our community are. And so I asked a horticulture friend, and he said exactly what Apple Dan would have told me. He says, they're being treated too well. You're giving them too much water, too much fertilizer. You know, they aren't being stressed. You need to stress them. Get on, chop off some of the roots, you know, cut them back severely. Well, and then I see the ones around the edge of the community that don't get much care at all, and they produce beautiful flowers. So I did a little research and found in an old farmer's almanac that says this, the easiest way to make a fruit tree bear more fruit. Sounds a little crazy, but it works. The tree must feel like it's under attack and therefore needs to produce some seeds so the species will carry on after it dies. I know it sounds kind of crazy, but if you have any kind of fruit tree that is not bearing much year after year, then try this simple solution. Trees are living things and have learned how to survive and carry on through difficult times. They adapt to situations if they possibly can. All you have to do for an unproductive fruit tree to bear more fruit is to stimulate the reproductive hormones. Do this by whacking the side of the trunk six to eight times with a sturdy baseball bat. This will not hurt the tree. Now, this is right out of the farmer's almanac. So my question is, you know, is there a lesson in this for us? Is it to our benefit that we seek to avoid any kind of challenge? Does a job loss or a business failure, or a home foreclosure, you know, do those things kill us? Or are those the beatings that hold within them the potential to make us stronger and more productive? I mean, do we shrink back into safety every time we can? Or, or can that challenge wake up the very best we have to offer? I mean, as parents, we see this played out. How do we bring out the best in our children? Now, Henry David Thoreau said, I see young men, my townsmen, whose misfortune it is to have inherited farms, houses, barns, cattle, and farming tools. For these are more easily acquired than got rid of. Better if they had been born in the open pasture and suckled by a wolf, that they might have seen with clear eyes what wheat they were called to labor in. Now, I, every day, you know, I hear from people who've been given all the advantages, you know, prestigious university degrees, fine homes, cars, positions, and they suspect that the easy life they've been given is keeping them from the challenge of adventure that would release the best version of themselves. So are you you taking the safe route in life to avoid the stresses and challenges that are trying to release your biggest harvest? And no, you don't need to go find somebody to beat you up or, or artificially create a stressful situation in your life. I mean, I know that in my life, those things have just shown up consistently. I didn't have to go looking for them. But what I do hope is that I'm getting smarter and seeing what does this make possible? What is this challenge or perceived obstacle that I have What is it opening the door for that I wasn't even able to see previously? Again, I want those, you send me your stories on how an obstacle or how a beating that you got in life opened you up to a better opportunity. I got another another story here I want to share about seeing opportunity where others see overwhelming obstacles. Now, this is just this last week. Here we are, the middle middle of May. There's a, a kid in England who has a really interesting story. He was, he's 12 years old, and he makes 
wooden objects. So his dad put a note up on Instagram about his son making these bowls. And he you know, wanted to know if people were interested in these beautiful bowls. And he sold, sold one of these. Well, for some reason, that really went viral. I mean, he just put out there, he said, um, I'm looking for a wee favor. I have a 12-year-old boy who loves woodwork. He spends hours on his lathe making bowls and creating chopping boards, which he sells to save up for a mountain bike. So that was the thing that he put out. That got spread around for some reason. And this 12-year-old kid who was making this beautiful bowl, and they showed a picture of it, his Instagram followers jumped from six He had six Instagram followers. It jumped to 227,000 in just eight hours. And it just went on from there. So here he was. He had over 20,000 requests for those wooden bowls. Now that's a situation, you know, what are you going to do when you're so overwhelmed? I mean, each bowl might have taken him 10 hours to produce. I don't know, you know, but it certainly took a long time to produce what is shown. 20,000 requests for those bowls. Well, you could just throw your hands up and say, well, you know, that's an idea that just, there's no way I can make that work. No, this little boy and his dad got creative. They said, look, he's going to make one bowl. They're going to draw, draw for that. They're going to give that in a lottery drawing to one person, and they're going to give it to everybody who donates money to save the children in Ukraine which is an organization this little boy was also contributing to. They said, donate any amount to them. Let them know. They'll put your name in a hat. And they raised $325,000 with nearly 15,000 people donating. Now, how cool is that to turn what seemed to be an overwhelming situation into just an opportunity to just spread the goodness around? $325,000 in just a couple of days, people putting their donating and thus putting their name in the hat for the one bowl that was going to be given away. Well, they awarded the bowl. Some gal named Renuka Chapman is thrilled to have it and says this bowl will be one of my most treasured possessions. It represents hope, compassion, and kindness. It will have a place of pride in my home. My point is just, how often have you been confronted? How often have I been confronted with situations that just seem to be overwhelming and impossible? And yet in there, there's an opportunity to just do something different. Be creative, be innovative, come up with a solution that other people wouldn't see and make it somehow a wonderful experience. All right. Hey, I want to talk a little bit about the ongoing craziness in the workplace that we're seeing. This is just, it's just too wild to even get your head around the number of people quitting, the number of people just flipping through jobs, the number of people leaving traditional jobs completely. So here's some updated stats. Last week I shared about the fact that in March, and I still don't have the stats for um, April just yet, but in, in, well, I do have some of the stats in terms of unemployment, but in terms of the number of people who quit, we know it was over 4 million. Again, it's been um, what I think we got, 10 months now where it's been over 4 million people a month who are quitting their jobs. But the employment situation, I get the stats from the Bureau of Labor Statistics talking about how many people have quit, how many people are unemployed and all of that. Well, the, the 
payroll employment increased by 428,000 in April. So almost half a million new jobs, more jobs than before in April. And that continues to be the case. Unemployment rate stayed the same at 3.6%. Now, again, that's really low. Anytime it's under 5%, we considered that to be full employment. So certainly unemployment isn't a problem in as much as we still have 4 million of people quitting their jobs. But those people who are quitting their jobs are finding other opportunities. And I'll tell you what those are. But one of the categories that I'm always just astounded by is what the government calls discouraged workers. So these are people who have not looked for a job in over four weeks because they believe that nothing is available for them. Now, how they assess who falls into that category, I have no idea. I mean, I, I don't know how they get these figures to describe then these discouraged workers, but they say there were 456,000 of them in April. Not much different from the month before. Discouraged workers, people who haven't looked for work in four weeks because they think there's nothing available for them. Now, I, I think what they don't realize is those a whole lot of those people aren't discouraged. They're encouraged because they're figuring things out to do other than just walk down the street, knock on the door with a resume and hope they get a, a J-O-B. Now, this is changing a lot of things. I mean, we're, we're talking about this great resignation and they're talking about it being a permanent thing that may never end. Because people, people's eyes were open so much during the last two years, during the pandemic, recognizing they could go anywhere they wanted to. They could work remotely. I mean, at this point, um, golly, about 30% of the jobs available you can do remotely. You don't even have to show up. So people know that they can be working for a company on the other side of the state the other side of the country or the other side of the world. Now that also creates a new opportunity for people looking for jobs because you're not just competing with the people in your city at this point, you are competing with people anywhere in the world. And that could be something that gives you a pause and maybe a little bit of a challenge, but why are so many people quitting? I mean, certainly some people hate their bosses, others just get bored, or they feel like they should have gotten a promotion and didn't get it, or they reach a point of burnout that uh, it's going to take more than a vacation to fix. I mean, HR departments are scrambling to figure out how to not only hire, but to keep people you know, through this whopping change that we're seeing. And you know, last year, and just to look into the pure numbers, it really means 33% of Americans left their jobs. 33% left their jobs. Now, what we're also seeing is that one third of the people who quit their jobs within the past six months did so to start their own business. See, and those people confuse the stats that the government's trying to find. What if somebody filed for unemployment and they went through the period where they got that and never to be heard of again. Uh, the government assumes that they're just a discouraged worker. Jeez, no, they got a little business going on the side. Wow, they're doing something on their own and never looking back, never planning to go back to get another job. One third of the people who quit their jobs did so to start their own business. That's really, really interesting. 
Now, what's happening too is what we're seeing is that a lot of people who are deciding to start their own businesses, let's say that somebody was making $120,000 in a job and they quit their job. Now they started their own little business and they're making half of that. They're making $60,000 a year. A lot of people are doing that and thrilled at the decision that they made. Now, just this last Monday in our Eagles group, our Monday mentor training was with my daughter, Ashley, and her husband, Nathan, Ashley Nathan Logston, and our title was Creating a Life You Don't Want to Escape From. They're really an example of this phenomenon. Nathan was working as a banker, worked for BB&T Bank, opening branches for them in Nashville, and then he got involved in real estate. He was very successful as a real estate agent, and then they went to, they decided to take a month off. They went to Costa Rica and really reevaluated where they were going. They had three little girls, and they decided they wanted a life that was different than what they had, where they were just off to work every day, working hard, and you know, try to get a little fun in on the weekends. They decided they wanted a life that they did not want to just have a two-week vacation from. So they did that. They took two years and planned that, and they've been now five years full-time travelers. Now, they have a couple houses, and because of that, because of having a couple houses where they worked hard and bought modest houses, but now rent those out, the rent from those pays the mortgage and gives them money that they can live on. Ashley works for me. She's one of those digital nomads that doesn't have to come into the office. She works for me. So they've got things set up where they're not depleting their finances. They're making money, saving money every day, but they're living a life that's very, very different than most people do. Yes, they made some sacrifices financially in terms of the income that Nathan was making. And now to move away from that, they did that very intentionally to create the life that they wanted. And a lot of people were doing that. So it's not so companies, it makes it uh, then much more of a quandary for companies because it's not just a matter of paying more money to get people to come work for you. Nope, it's not that. It's not that. Well, and there's companies all over the place that are scrambling Home Depot has a new plan that they just call speedy job offers. They said this last Tuesday that job applicants could receive an offer within a day of applying. Uh, They need to hire 100,000 new associates ahead of the the busy summer season that's coming here. And uh, they're hiring flexible full-time, part-time positions and all kinds of different things. So this is not a a promo, a sponsorship by Home Depot, just to tell you how creative companies are getting. And they're offering upskilling programs, you know, that allow you to advance in their company, tuition reimbursement, a cash bonus program, discounted stock options. I mean, a lot of things to try to get people to come. Now, that's a whole lot of information, a whole lot of just uh, some of the the stats, some of the details are what's happening in this changing work environment. But believe me, it's going to continue to change. It's not going to go, go back to normal anytime soon. Probably never. It's just changes. And if you understand the changes then we can we can have those changes be to our advantage rather than feeling victimized by them. All right, let's jump into some questions here. Sam says, Dan, I'm an Eagles member. I've been following your work since the early 2000s. Over the years, I've learned so much from your advice to other listeners. 
However, this is the first time I felt compelled to ask for your advice directly. In November of 2021, I was approached by a recruiter about a new position in my area. I was told it would require some travel, but only in my city and immediate surrounding communities. I clarified the travel expectations several times, was told the company would be hiring other employees for the metro area, which is located about an hour from where I live. As a result, I would not need to travel to that area. I continued to clarify this expectation when I interviewed with the company's leadership team. Nothing in my interviews indicated that I would need to travel into the metro area to see clients. Again, I was told my clients would be in my community and surrounding communities only. I was excited to be offered the position. Salary and benefits packages were the best I've ever seen in my 30-plus year career. I gladly accepted the job, started working with this company in January of 2022. Since that time, I've been expected to travel one to one and a half hours into the metro area south of my community every week. Initially, I was told this was just a temporary expectation until leadership was able to hire someone to work in that region. Recently, a new employee was hired. However, now the expectation is that he and I will share the metro territory. The company has not been able to establish enough clients in my area, and as a result, we will both be expected to drive into the city daily in order to see clients there. Dan, I realize corporate business needs change as a result of issues inside and outside of their control. However, I feel that I was misled by the recruiter and company leadership. Out of respect for them, myself, and my family, I would never have accepted this position if I would have known that I would be expected to commute into a metro area over an hour away from my home. My work days start around 7 a.m., often go until 7.30 or 8 p.m. At the end of the day and week, I'm too exhausted to look for another job or start my own business. I'm preparing to have an additional conversation about my schedule with my manager, but honestly, I do not believe she'll be able to have any influence on these travel requirements. I hate to quit a job after only four months, but I'm beginning to believe these travel expectations will not change. Please let me know if you have any suggestions. In the meantime, queue up Willie Nelson. I'll be on the road again. Thanks so much for the work you do. Well, here's here's the deal, Sam. Again, we, we just talked about how people are quitting. And believe me, there's a whole lot of people quitting after five months on the job, four months on the job. There are people quitting after five hours on the job. I hear those stories. People are just amazed. They go through the process of screening somebody, checking their background, doing drug testing, personality profile and all that, hire somebody and they show up for one day and then never come back or don't come the first day. So not that it, and I appreciate your, your sense of loyalty, your sense of not just wanting to be a job hopper here. And I'm sure you made, you know, went through a, a lot of decision-making process to accept this job, but you can ask yourself every morning, is this work that is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable. Does this work allow me to live the life that I love? Now, in the same way, the company officials are asking themselves every morning, is Sam the guy we want in this position? Is he the very best candidate we can find to do the job? And if either you or your employer says no, it's reason to make a change. So with what you're describing, with your level of dissatisfaction there, I suspect a change is pretty inevitable and sooner than later. I mean, you don't really need to just say, well, you're going to just stick it out, just bite the bullet, you know, for another year. Now it sounds like, you know, the company may have had good intentions at not having you to travel by 
thinking they would get more clients where you could have a shorter span where that you needed to cover. And so it doesn't sound like necessarily, you know, misrepresentation there of any kind. It just didn't work out. And um, that certainly is often the case. But you're still in this situation of saying, you know, should I stay or should I go? Last week, I mentioned on here a story about a 100-year-old man who broke the Guinness World Record for the longest time employed at the same company. Remember that? Guy had been, uh, this dude had been at the, on the, with the same company for 84 years. 84 years. And he says his proudest achievement is, you know, just is breaking that record. But here's what he added, too. And here's where I want to kind of pick up on this. This guy had been at the same job for 84 years. Here's a quote from him. I don't do much planning, nor care much about tomorrow. He said, all I care about is that tomorrow will be another day in which I will wake up, get up, exercise, and go to work. You need to get busy with the present, not the past or the future. Here and now is what counts. That's the way you stay in a job for 84 years, or 20 years, or five years, or five months. If you're not planning your future, if you don't care about tomorrow, wow, all of a sudden you can have a whole lot of years go by in a job that's not meaningful, purposeful, and fulfilling or profitable. You just stand there because all you're doing is just thinking about today and not thinking about yesterday or tomorrow. I don't recommend that at all. I mean, the way you stay vibrant is to be planning your future. And seeing that what you have right now is the best choice for right now. Now, it doesn't have to be your dream job if you recognize that what you're doing is a responsible and effective choice to allow you to continue to move toward your long-term goals. So, should you stay or should you go? I mean, the best option may not be the easiest. When, when you've invested a lot of time and effort into making a decision to take a job, it's easy just to stay there. It kind of falls in what we call the the sunk cost fallacy. It's like if you're halfway through law school and you think, geez, I don't want to be an attorney, but yet you've you went through the process, the arduous process of getting accepted. You've already spent the money on two years and you think, eh, I might as well just stay here and finish it out. I mean, a lot of that happens. I mean, a lot of people, you know, buy a house and then realize it's a money pit. You know, there or or somebody has a, a car. I talked to somebody this week who has a car that had the electrical system go out. Well, it's a four thousand dollar repair. The car isn't worth that much. The car is not worth four thousand dollars in good working order. And yet, you know, this person is on the fence. Should they repair the car or not? Well, my thought is you know, no, don't, but it's that sunk cost. And we often do that with jobs, but key, you need to pay attention to your network, other people that you can talk about, other people that know your industry and know other industries, you know, make sure you're nurturing connections that are so important to giving you new opportunities. You can prepare for a transition period. When you do change jobs, you know, you have to be realistic about the fact that it's going to require a new learning curve. No matter how familiar you are with the work, there's still going to be a new learning curve if you change. So there's, there's that to consider. But learn to use these times of uncertainty to become more resilient. It can make you stronger. It can make you more ab- 
able to weather these kind of obstacles and changes as they come up in the future, and as they certainly are going to. Well, here's somebody who needs good career direction. Uh, Sherry says, I used to listen to you over 30 years ago on Christian Talk Radio while I was working. Wow, that goes back a ways. Yeah, I was on um, Way FM. I used to be on Way FM in, in Nashville, Tennessee, back in their early days. And uh, my early days of doing this, we had, I think it was called Success Strategies I would do on there. But I've been on radio a lot over the years. And uh, so, so Sherry's question is this. My 22-year-old granddaughter moved to Phoenix. She has just had her car stolen. She probably owes more on it than she'll get back from insurance. How should we advise her? She already owes us $7,000. Well, this, this is tough, and there are way too many factors in here for me to give a very specific advice. But at 22 years old, to be in that kind of debt, there's some really red flags. I mean, what is she doing to provide for herself? What was that $7,000 used for? I mean, if, if it really was a loan, was there a clear plan for repayment? Now, personally, I think this is a, an impossible situation for everybody involved. I, I don't think parents or grandparents can loan their children or grandchildren money. It just sets up unrealistic relationship dynamics um, as Dave Ramsey talks about, you know, Thanksgiving dinner is going to be a whole lot different if cousin Vinny owes you money, you know, that he hasn't paid you back or any family member. I mean, recently, our grandson, our oldest grandson, who has moved from Cal- Colorado to here in Florida, where we live, moved here the very first day he was here, got a job. He's been very faithful in that. He saved up his money. He didn't know anything in his car. And I encouraged him to get another car because the car he had was um, yeah, pretty worn out, and he wasn't pushing for it, and I really encouraged him to do it. So we agreed on a budget of $8,000, and we started looking for a car. We went several places. He decided he wanted a Mini Cooper, and I thought it was really cool that he, he wanted one, and so we looked at, looked at him, and we went and looked at one that um, we knew was a little out of his price range, but I wanted him to get familiar with him, and we drove it all, and it was just an amazing car. At, at a BMW dealership, it was just it was just beautiful in every way. Well, so I went in. I said, "Hey, let's talk about it." We went in, sat down with the with the salesman. He worked it all out. And at the end of the day, now it was significantly more, but at the end of the day, he agreed to eleven thousand dollars out the door. Eleven thousand dollars, everything included. Well, my grandson had ten thousand dollars that he had budgeted for the car with my agreement. And I said, look, I think this is a car for you. I think this is going to make you a really great car. I want you to have it. Um, and so he put down his $8,000, and I reached in my pocket and pulled out another three to make the deal work. I mean, he's proven himself to be responsible and saving money, taking care of his cars. He has a great job. He's paying all his bills, saving money every month. So I didn't do that as a loan. I didn't, there was no obligation. As a matter of fact, it was my decision to go over his budget, not his. Now he had the money. He had the extra money. He's got plenty of money in savings, but we had agreed to it. It was just something that I wanted to help him with. So there was that, but it it wasn't a loan. If he had not had the money and I wasn't willing to just put it in, I would not have done the deal. I would have just stuck to his budget. We would have gone to look at another car because I would not have wanted to strap him with a loan that he owed me. With your granddaughter, 
I would require a clear plan from your granddaughter. You've earned the right because of the position she's put you in where she owes you money. But I'd also, and so I think you really need to be clear on what is she doing to take care of herself? You know, is, is she making good decisions in every area of her life? You know, how could she avoid being upside down in a car that she's driving? Oh, more than what the insurance company is going to pay her. But I'd also be prepared to wipe out the $7,000 loan to preserve a healthy relationship with her. I mean, don't get put in that position again, but give her some guidance for creating and managing her money well, and then move on from there. Great questions. Well, hey, just a reminder here as we hear the music, these are real life questions. Again, we've got a contest going on. Send me your story about overcoming an obstacle and how it launched you into something better. Or if you just got questions for here, a success story you want to share, go to 48days.com slash askdan. You can leave your question there. You can write that out or you can just speak into the microphone. Give us an audio message as well. Well, Justin says, I probably need to check with the local laws and permits, but tomorrow I'm jogging a 5K for the opening ceremonies, the Indy 500. They're also offering one half marathon. I was required to pay $35 as an entry fee. He says, of course, I got some swag with it, but I know the people running the half marathon had to pay more than I did. I also know there are thousands of people who sign up to run every year. So do the math. Also, if you're a runner, you know there are probably 10 to 15 5Ks, marathons or half marathons in your specific area in the spring, summer, and fall. So the question is, how hard could it be to put one of those together? How much money could one stand to make for oneself? Or could you set up runs on behalf of some nonprofit as a fundraiser while keeping a percentage for being the one to set it all up and run the event the day of? Well, I I love how you're thinking. Justin, to see this and recognize there may be a financial opportunity with that. Now, with somebody just paying $35 as an entry fee and then getting some swag, I suspect the margins are pretty thin on this, even if you have a whole lot of people who are engaged. When you deal with permits and all the things required and the people required to put on an event like that, to you know be at the intersections and to just help all the way through, the runners and all that, eh, that's going to be a pretty significant overhead. Most of those kind of events, really the only margin they have is because of sponsors that they have. So they have sponsors where the fees from the participants really barely cover the expenses, but then you have sponsorships that do provide a little margin. But typically those kind of events aren't big money makers. Now there are things that are comparable to that that you can do. I mean, Francis in our Eagles community is a is a wonderful piano player. She puts on events, sells it out. Tickets are, I think, like fifty, sixty dollars a piece. She sells that out. And that covers those tickets cover the cost of the venue where she's going to hold the event and then pay an other performers, other musicians to help make this a full blown performance and all those things that go with that. But then she finds sponsors, her money, her real profit comes from finding sponsors. You can do that. I've looked at, of course, we've done a lot of events over the years, our coaching with excellence, innovate right to the bank. I mean, if you do something that draws on your area of expertise, I would encourage you to do that. Do something in an area where you already know about it, something that you really enjoy. 
But we used to do events and we did them on our property. So I didn't have the cost of a hotel or any kind of a venue. It was just in the old converted barn we called the sanctuary on our property. We'd limit those to 48 people. We'd say that at least typically we'd squeeze 60 in for the events. We'd have a two-day event, Coaching with Excellence, Innovate Right to the Bank, um, and the 60 people were paying $1,000 a piece. We had a whole lot of profit in those. I mean, we'd give them lunch, but uh, we know we'd have fun with that. We'd have like the red truck from Famous Dave's or Puckett's come out on our property and do the cooking right there on the property. I mean, we had some really fun experiences just to add to the overall experience, but very low cost. So those are very, very profitable. So if you find an opportunity to do something like that, yeah, you can do that. There's a, there's a whole lot of ways you can do this. I mean, I, I had a young guy come to me years ago as a client, and he was the weatherman at the local TV station. So his name was pretty well known, but he wanted to teach people about the weather. I mean, how you get ready if you know there's a tornado coming and so on. Well, people pay, typically don't pay for that kind of information. It's pretty easy to get and they expect just to be able to flip on the TV or the radio or on their phone or whatever and get that information. And I said, you know, I think you're going to have trouble getting people to pay to attend an event like that. But I think you're looking at the wrong place for the profitability in the event you want to do. I said, why don't you go find sponsors for the event? People who want to have influence with the people who would attend. Well, he did exactly that. He went back to his hometown and, uh, went to he went to 12 different places he went to like state farm insurance a place that provided the tornado shelters uh the chevy dealership i remember some of them he went to but he went to 12 people who paid him 250 dollars for a sponsorship i mean very low amount so then he showed up went to a church the churches would host the events because they thought it was a good community service so charlie would show up do his presentation on the weather. The people who attended didn't have to pay anything, but he had $3,000 in his pocket every time he presented because of the sponsors that he had. So absolutely, but I, I love your thinking, Justin, on this. I think you can find an opportunity. It may not be putting on a race. Uh, that would not be my first choice, but I think you're on the right track to finding something that you could do where you do get people to participate and make a good profit in doing so. Well, here, let me just, I'm going to go with one more here. Yeah, we're going to be run out of time. Terry says, um, well, here's, here's one. I'll just share this real quick and then one more question. Uh, Terry says, Dan, thank you for the copy of 48 Days to the Work and Life You Love after answering my question on episode 371. I've read it, love it, put it in my kids' homeschool curriculum. It was required reading. My one daughter just got her first real job at State Farm Insurance the other day. And one of the questions that the boss asked her in the interview was, what are you reading right now? She replied, 48 days to the work you love. And he says, I'm not saying it got the, her the job, but it didn't hurt. She got the job. Keep up the important calling and great work. Longtime podcast listener. Well, thank thanks, Terry, for that. And yes, everybody whose question I answer here, I send a copy immediately, uh, autographed copy of 48 days to the work you love. All right. So last question here. Let's go with this one. Adam says, my question is, what are the books you recommend that will get me out of the doldrums that are life-changing and as impactful as any you've ever read? He says, says, I've read, he says, I've read a bunch of things like how to win friends and influence people, see you at the top, think and grow rich. 
answers for me. What am I missing? What other books do you recommend for someone who's trying to grow and improve their mindset? I've read four out of five of these want more. Well, Adam, I don't have any problem at all giving you another list. And what I'm going to do is going to give you the list that we're using in our Eagles community this year. Now, last year, we spent the entire year going through the book, Think and Grow Rich. So we went through that one chapter every month, the fourth Monday of every month. This year, instead of just going with one book, we chose 12 books. And I had members of the Eagles community submit. They submitted tons of ideas. And I just sorted through that and selected 12 books that I think can be absolutely life-changing. And we're going through those one at a time, one every month. So in January, we went through How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. And incidentally, uh, I gave at the beginning here our resource for today. It is where you can go and get the list of these books. Actually, you can get, I think you get the work study guides that we had and the whole deal if you use this link. If you go to 48days.com slash eagle eye, I think that'll put you right in and give you a lot of information on these books. So anyway, in January, yeah, we went through how to win friends and influence people at a delightful conversation. I select three or four people each month to come on live with me to discuss their how they were influenced and impacted by these books as well. So then in February, we did see you at the top, Zig Ziglar. Great stories about how to overcome negative thinking and you know how to see helping other people as a way to get ahead and all that. In March, we did the magic of thinking big with David Schwartz. In April, we went through future proofing you, probably not as widely known by Jay Salmon, but a great book had again, people come on and share their experiences and having read that book. In May this month, the fourth Monday of this month, we're going to be going through the success principles by Jack Canfield. It's a big book. The stories in there are just endless things that people have used to overcome adversity, things that people have used to kind of tip the scale in their favor and become super successful. June next month, we're going to go through the dip. Seth Godin, I referenced that last week in the podcast about sometimes it's the wisest decision is to quit. Don't just keep persisting if it's not working. And this book is going to go through the principles there. So that's in June. July, our book is Deep Work with Cal Newport. August, The Millionaire Mind, Thomas Stanley. September, High Performance Habits, Brendan Bouchard. October, Free to Focus, Michael Hyatt's book. November, Daily Rituals, Mason Curry. I love this little book, describing people in history who had uh, sometimes kind of quirky habits that they used to keep them really productive. I mean, I remember a writer who kept a rotten apple in his top desk drawer because he thought somehow the stench stimulated his most creative writing. But we're going to be going through that daily rituals in November. And then December, Tools of Titans, Tim Ferriss. Again, stories from a lot of very successful, um, very well-known contemporary today people and the the things that they use to add to their success. So again, you can go to 48days.com, Eagle Eye. You can uh, get the list there and the resources go with that check it out. And I will absolutely, I'm totally 100% confident that if you read these books, it'll change your life forever. There's 12 books. I mean, all you have to do is read one a month. And that's not a very aggressive reading schedule in my eyes. But if you read those 12 books, those 12 great books in one year, your life is never going to be the same. 
Well, hey, I'm out of breath and ready to wrap it up here. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sending in your questions, for being open to growing, for being a powerful force, for making the world a better place, and for believing, as I know you do, without a shadow of a doubt, that we can find or create work that is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable.